Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest question, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is a man amongst men. He is an entrepreneur, author, thought leader, internationally sought after speaker, and coach for high-performing executives. For over 15 years, he dominated leadership roles and sales teams inside Fortune 100 firms as the youngest executive owning a 1.4 billion sales goal in a corner office overlooking Times Square. In the public eye, he was the poster child of a highly successful man. But in the shadows of his private life, he was struggling with sex addiction. After finding the heroin lever between his legs in his formative years, constantly sexting women and watching porn to drown out his emotions, and escalating to having multiple partners while being in a relationship, he found himself drifting. For four years, he went to Sex Addicts Anonymous, confronting a lifelong addiction he never wanted to admit. Taking the courage to speak up for the men feeling secretive, chaotic, wrong, burdened by guilt and shame, or escalating in troublesome ways, he has boldly taken the taboo out of the bedroom and into the conversations of men and women around the globe. Through his podcasts, men's retreats, and live events entitled The Discerning Dick, he is now leading hundreds of men through worthy inquiry and meaningful introspection into the forces that shape a man's sexuality, behavior, and intimate relationships, getting both men and women to boldly face issues most don't even want to discuss. He's been featured in dozens of the largest publications, including the New York Times, NPR, Forbes, Thrive Global, and spoken on hundreds of stages for TEDx, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Prudential, and countless others. He has been said to have a rare combination of the charisma and passion of a Tony Robbins with the attributable research of a social science dissertation. I'm honored to welcome the Amazon number one best-selling author of Design Your Future, co-host of the Man Amongst Men podcast, and someone whose favorite 90s movie might just be White Man Can't Jump, Portuccio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, you are someone who has done his research. And I got to tell you, as you were reading through that, the only person who's done intros as well as that is Tom Bilyeu on Impact mm -hmm. Theory. Just the, I feel honored, man. Thank you. Thank you. And for the laugh, uh, I guess we'll get it. We'll have to explain why it's so funny that White Men Can Jump is my favorite movie of the 90s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really easy to write the intro when you have such a spectacular bio um, behind you. And one of the places I'd actually like to start in your story, um, because you've gone quite a bit over growing up and sort of, you know, the formative years of your sexuality and the aspect of your um, parents, you know, not talking about it and shielding you from sex scenes and things like that. And so I was really wondering, what was your relationship like with your parents, specifically like your father around sexuality and masculinity? Yeah, man, I appreciate that question. Uh, first of all, I never thought that I, nor did I ever want to talk openly about sexuality because it always seemed to be something that was painted with dark strokes. It was something that you kept right. hidden in the corner. Um, with my father specifically, um, I, I knew nothing about his sexuality. We never right. talked about it. Like the, uh, and, and I have an amazing relationship with both my, my parents. My mother and father are still together. I love them dearly. And we can get into all of that later. But I think like the real specific around your question is, I knew nothing about my father's sexuality other than when we be at home as a family watching a movie on a Friday night, 
and the, the movie would turn into some sexually suggestive scene like a, a woman in a bikini for God's sake. And my parents would lunge across the couch and be like, cover your eyes. And, and like, it would be this like dark cloud of tension hanging in the room for like a 10 minute period afterwards. Like they were upset. They'd be making that disapproving noise. Like, why do movies have to do this stuff? And I'm sitting there with like a half boner and, yeah. and it, like at the same time of this like deep guilt and shame for having that half boner. And, and it was like, it was like this little mini moment in time where I was like, wow, I love this mm-hmm. and I know this is wrong. And that became a theme for me for the rest, for the next two, three decades of my life. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's a, it's already like an awkward situation when you have that come up with your parents, but then to have that shame put on top of it can really start to make that tabooness of it and hiding it and feeling guilty around it um, start to formulate very young. Very young. And I think the, the thing that as I can see now after years of sex addicts anonymous recovery and therapy and coaches, I, I always tell people it takes like a village to keep my engine running clean. <laughs> um, I can now look back on it and, and see that there was, it was kind of like the birthplace of two of, two of my lives my public facing life, the Dominic, that was the good Catholic schoolboy who was praised for getting good grades or who was praised for being well-behaved and right. praised for doing well in the sports field and th- those parts of me. And then there was this other side of me that was like, I was emotionally, uh, I was very sensitive. Um, I would get down on myself. I also felt like this draw towards Victoria's Secret catalogs or like movies with nudity in it. Yeah. And, and like, those were the sides of me that I could get punished for, or I could go to hell for, or I, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that was the side, but it also felt titillating. It felt alive. Mm-hmm. And so like I need, I wasn't willing to give that up. So that became private Dominic, public Dominic ran concurrently for decades and worked well until it didn't. Yeah. And one of the concepts that you bring up um, is this idea of drift. Um, and I'm wondering if you used sex as a way to numb the drift that you might be having in your public life, um, by having these, you know, tantalizing and exciting things in your private life. The answer is absolutely. And if you don't mind, if I can give a quick aside on, on dimensionalizing drift, cause I do believe it's one of the most powerful concepts I've learned, um, in my life. And I think your audience may really benefit from this. Um, Drift is a, is a term that I've borrowed from someone I consider to be a mentor of mine who has no idea that I exist because he's been dead for seven decades. His <laughs> name is Napoleon Hill. And some of your listeners may be very familiar with him because Napoleon Hill wrote the book, Think and Grow Rich. He's famous mm-hmm. for it. And Think and Grow there's only 15 books that have ever sold over 50 million copies worldwide. Uh, most of those are fiction novels like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter novels. <laughs> only book business book and self performance self improvement book that's ever cracked that threshold is think and grow rich and the way that that book came to be was um napoleon hill had a, that was my my amazon thing just chiming in for a second <laughs> sorry about that um he had uh napoleon hill had a um a mentor by the name of andrew carnegie from carnegie steel and andrew carnegie said napoleon if you want to learn how the rich become rich and how they've attracted the most success in the world and go and interview 500 of the most successful people, distill their secrets, write that book. And that's what Napoleon Hill did. And that became the Bible called the Bible for riches, which is called think and grow rich. 
But the secondary piece of advice that Carnegie gave Napoleon Hill, it was the one that I'm most fascinated by. And he said, if you want to understand the full human experience, then you need to go out and interview 10 times as many people at the end of their lives mm-hmm. on their deathbeds who feel like they've left chips on the table, like they lived a life of regret. Talk to them, find out what happened in their lives, mine their secrets, write that book. And Napoleon Hill went out and interviewed 25,000 of those people over the next two, three decades of his life. And he wrote the book, Outwitting the Devil. And in this book, Outwitting the Devil, which is the number one most important book of my life, he creates this fictionalized character, the devil, who is a distillation of those 25,000 dreams that were lost. Mm. And there is this like one passage in the book that really shook me to my core. I remember reading it here in New York City during Hurricane Sandy back in like 2011, where all the power was out, no electricity, right. no Wi-Fi. And the word, there was just like nothing to distract me. And the passage went something like this. The devil says, I enter the minds of people through habit. And through habit, I establish this principle of drifting. And when I get a person to drift, I can lead them straight towards the gates of hell. Mm. And what he's saying is that like, we think we are making conscious decisions on a regular basis. Like we're the ones behind the driver wheel of our car. When in actuality, it's oftentimes like our habits and patterns. It's what we've learned from our parents unconsciously. It's the social economic environment that we grew up in. It's the experiences that we've had, the prejudices that we've either faced or, or that we've built on ourselves. And in, in, in actuality, we're oftentimes in the passenger seat or the backseat of our own cars while those habits and patterns and systems are running unconsciously. And the only way that we tend to wake up from that drift is when an outside force comes in and crashes down upon us and wakes us up and shakes us to our core, we finally have to start thinking. Right. And, and that's why like one of the biggest moments of my life where I woke up from drift was, as you mentioned, you know, in, in the intro was um, being caught cheating on the woman, the only woman that I'd ever fallen in love with in my 35 years on this planet. And so drifting can show up in any, in, in, in any number of contexts, Brandon. And the, the, to, to get back to your question specifically, in my public dominic life, where I was, in my public dominic life, I was drifting because I was living out a script that I thought mm-hmm. I was supposed to. And the way that I could navigate the pain of like not really being connected to my own purpose or knowing what that was, my private life served that function. Mm-hmm. And I was drifting because I didn't even know that all the pornography, all the sexting, all of these like hidden things that I was doing was completely preventing me from creating meaningful relationships with other people and most specifically with myself. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's powerful. And, um, you know, people don't realize that, you know, our brain is always trying to optimize itself. And so it's going to take whatever stories, habits, beliefs, things that you taking all this information and then running it through these systems we already have. And a lot of times those systems are outdated. They come from our childhood. Um, totally. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about the transformation that you went through during Sex Addicts Anonymous, um, you know, getting rid of some of these old wirings and habits and, you know, what you had to go through. Yeah. You know what, you know, what's interesting was like the first, the first and most difficult part of that, Brandon was, so 
you read in my introduction that at the time I was, I, I was working at a Fortune 100 financial services firm. I was a sales leader, I had the corner office in Times Square overlooking where the ball drops on New Year's. And we had a $1.4 billion sales goal. There was a lot of responsibility and I was a young guy doing it. It was, mm -hmm. it was like, you know, on, on paper, everything was great. And also a big part of my belief system was I had to be impenetrable. I had to be perfect. Like I had to be on my game at all times. And of course, like, you know, we can learn things from failures, blah, blah, blah. But really it's like, no, you got to be on your shit all the time. Right. The idea that I was going to walk into a 12 step sex addicts anonymous meeting and, and like go in and say the words, hi, I'm Dominic. I'm a sex addict. Like I'd seen cartoonized in how many different like TV shows and jokes from comedians on stage. Right. Like I was now a punchline dude. And, and like, I was terrified. I will remember just, it was January 6, 2013. It was dark going to St. Francis of Assisi church church on 31st street in Manhattan, terrified that someone was going to see me walking in there. Mm. And asked me what the fuck I was doing. And then like my whole life was going to unravel and explode. And when I walked into that room, I looked around and I did what most men do when they get into a room of other men. I sized everyone up to see, am I better than these guys? Right. Who's the alpha dog in here? <laughs> Where are the beta guys? You know, am I as fucked up as the rest of these guys? Are these guys more fucked up than me? And I, and I was so judgmental and I didn't even know I was doing this, man. It was just like kind of this unconscious conditioning. Right. Cause you and, didn't believe you believe, uh, belong there. I, you know what, man, I wanted to find every shred of evidence that I didn't belong there. Right. And, and, and so like I went in there with this mindset of, okay, let me prove to myself that these guys are fucked up. I'm not give me the, give me the protocol. I'm really good at execution. So tell me what I need to do. I'll be out of here in like <laughs> yeah. 60 days, something like that. I remember my, I said that to my therapist, he laughed in my face. Um, and what I learned, like, fortunately I ended up attracting, uh, an amazing sponsor. And what I mean by that is like, for anyone who's not familiar with the 12 step program, you, you have someone who's like a mentor, a guide, they become your sponsor, someone who's worked all of the 12 steps, who's been in there, who's demonstrated clean recovery over a period of time. And I just happened to say something one day in a share that he came up to me afterwards. And what he, he was able, and he was like a, like a, an extremely successful doctor who's on the cutting edge of, of like cancer research. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, and he came to me and he was just like, brother, your problem is that you are comparing yourself to everyone in this room. You are looking for reasons that they are beneath you. And in this room, like we do not compare, we look for ways to relate. Mm. And that was a very, it's, it sounds like, it, it sounds like a really subtle distinction, but it actually kind of changed the trajectory of every group of men I've ever entered since then. And this is what I teach in a lot of the work that I do with groups of men and men's groups that I lead and run is that most guys, me included, enter a room and I'm constantly looking for like, am I going to be, who's going to attack me? You know, like who, who's going to be the number one guy or who's right. the alpha dog? Am I the alpha dog? And these guys... I was competing with a group of guys who weren't competing with me. So my, it may surprise you to, to hear this, Brandon, but like one of the biggest things that comes to my mind when you ask me that question about sex addicts, anonymous recovery, one of the most important things I learned was that I could find groups of men who are powerful dudes, who are supportive guys, who wanted to hear my story, not because they could have like shit on me, 
but because they, they could relate to it with their own experiences and support me through my honesty and my openness. And that has what, that was one of the biggest stepping stones for my recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And now you run these men's groups. And one of the things that you say is like, if you want fast, sustainable and profoundly deeper results, you need to find a group of men who are committed to doing the same. Um, and so to how does having conversations with others really help to accelerate the personal development and work that you're trying to do on yourself? Yeah, brother, it's huge. Um, one of the traps I see too many men falling into is that they think they're doing the work by mm -hmm. reading books, by listening to podcasts. And that's a part that's like, you you know, it's, it's, it's an essential part of the journey is reading the books and listening to the podcasts. But personal development on your own, it's slow, it's shallow, and it's incomplete. Mm. And most guys think if they understand something intellectually, it's like, oh, I read Atomic Habits and like I understand what, you know, what the steps are to, to having a habit. <laughs> it's different than actually doing the work. It's actually, it's different than being surrounded by a group of men who are also there calling you out on your bullshit, right. support, but, but also supporting you and seeing parts of you that you don't even see for yourself because you're so buried in your own BS. And so like a, a, really, a really prominent example of that for me, for the last 18 months, I've been a part of a, a group of eight men who every Monday night, every single Monday night that we're in New York City, we meet and do two hours of inner work. And our specific focus, we follow a protocol developed by the Everyman group. Mm -hmm. So if you were to go to everyman.com and they spell it strange, it's like E-V-R-Y-M-A-N.com. They have like a protocol that you can follow for your own men's group if you're interested. Our, our focus is specifically on how do we start to feel our emotions and feelings and name them, become, develop emotional fluency so that like we could use our emotions as data to make like more powerful decisions, more confident mm -hmm. decisions, not be in our head because we often make like really heady, shitty decisions. It's like, what is your gut telling you? What is your heart telling you? You know, these kinds of things. And w when I first heard this idea, Brandon, when, my, when a couple of the guys in the group approached me to start this group with them, I thought it sounded stupid. I'm like, I'm going to join a group of feelings and emotions. This is dumb. And I'm like, it, it sounded exhausting to me. Over the last 18 months, it has been one of the biggest can openers in my life for making decisions, getting on those stages that you talked about, attracting, becoming magnetic to women, becoming trustworthy to women. And some of the guys in this group are like real heavy hitters. You know, these are guys who do deals with Elon Musk. Like these are guys who stand on stages in New York City and, and like sell out crowds. Like, so these are guys who are powerful masculine guys doing the work. And I would just encourage anyone of the men who's listening um, and women who was listening to your show also to step outside of the books, to step outside of the, the individual therapy, the individual coaching and like find your group who's going to do the work with you. Yeah, I think that's powerful because a lot of times we'll take in this information and we'll try and you know sort it out in our own head with all the biases and programs that we have. Um, and there's something very different about speaking the words that you have in your head. And that's going to be very cathartic, but then you're going to have somebody else reflect on that. And then you're also going to see them of how they're using their emotions, their words, their stories to do this work. And so now you have you know, sort of a template and somebody to relate to as you go through it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And, and, and you don't, sometimes you can't even see your own stuff when you're talking about it, but when someone else is, is doing their thing, you could see their BS much more clearly. Right. And then you're like, Oh shit. 
I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that just gives you like another uh, mechanism to, to break through. And so I say doing work with other groups of men and for the women that are listening to your show, other groups of women, it's like gasoline on the fire. Like you mm-hmm. accelerate what you want by doing work with other people that are there for the same reason as you. Absolutely. So there's this really, really good quote that um, you mention a lot in some of the other talks that you do. And it's the definition of health is on the last day on earth, the man that you become meets the man that you could have, or the man that you became meets the man that you could have become. And what I want to ask around that is how do we know the man we want to be and then intentionally be, you know, become that every single day? Yeah. Um, that's a quote that I found. Um, and I, and I've, I've, I've tried to figure out who, who I can attribute it to, but it's one of those like anonymous quotes on the internet. So whoever said it good on you, but you could be getting a lot of credit for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I feel like I, I want to put a disclaimer on this first, because I think there's a lot of pressure that people are feeling to figure out exactly who they need to be by mm. the end, by the time like they expire here, you know, there's like this tyranny of purpose, if like you don't have a purpose, if you don't, if you're not aligned with your purpose, then you are somehow like a substandard human being. And I see a lot of people who are, um, who, who get really wound up about that. And I know from 10 years ago when I was 30 years old, man, um, I had no clue what was going to light me up because inside I was so numbed out. I had those two separate worlds. Um, I was following a different script. So the gap between where I was and living a life of purpose and knowing where I wanted to be when I died 50 years, 60 years, 70 years from then, it, 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 was, it was overwhelming and it would have stopped me completely. Mm. Um, so I want to give you like a, a short-term piece of advice and then I definitely want to answer that, that, quite, that bigger question that you asked. Um, the way that I started to find my connection to purpose was I became an expert in following my energy and what lit me up. And when I say what followed my energy, it was purely a game of, does this thing excite me? Does this thing feel like I, I, could, I could grow? Um, do, like without even knowing how it fits into the grand scheme of things. You know what I mean? Like I, I started with, you know, I started reading books that lit me up. Then I went to a workshop like Landmark Forum that like, you know, cracked me open. And then I started learning hypnosis techniques and I started learning <laughs> neuro-linguistic programming. I had no idea how any of those things were going to fit into my future, but just by following what interested me and I could like just rekindle that flame, that is what allowed me to eventually like pull all of those different things together to be, to say, Oh my gosh, I've learned so much myself. I could become a coach. I could become a speaker. Mm. I have command of language in a way that most of the people are like, where the hell did you get your coaching? It's because of those things Kind of like how Steve Jobs just decided to take a, uh, what was it, like a calligraphy class? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's how it basically became the font types in his computer. Yeah. Same thing. And it's like most people think that that's a waste of time because our lives are too busy or whatever. Like I'm I'm telling people the opposite. It's like curate whatever it is and and dedicate some time to just following your energy. Those are clues which will then illuminate the path. And, um, and so to, to stretch back the answer to your original question, um, the way that I found the most amount of success with people I'm working with who are, who are asking me that same question is I like to tell people that it's helpful to have a 10-year vision, a 10-month mission, and a 10-week plan, mm. right? So it's like a 10-year vision. It's like, what's this big thing? that's really exciting to you. And, 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 and it's usually 
I try to get people off of like the specific goals and more like if the next 10 years of your life were going to be the most fulfilling, meaningful, adventurous, energizing, prosperous, relationship rich 10 years of your life, then what would go down? What experiences would you want to have? What skill sets would you want to develop? What relationships would you need to end? Which relationships would you want to forge? And I just, I, I'm like, dream big. Mm-hmm. And ver- versus like locking yourself into this, oh, I want to have, you know, this many million dollars in the bank and like right. this, right? That, that can come too. But then like drawing it back to, okay, like 10 years is a long time. I like that horizon because we often way underestimate what we can get done in 10 years. That's a Bill Gates quote. And he talks about, we overestimate what we can do in one year. We way underestimate what we can do in 10. So I like to have that big thing that gives you this like North star. So you can say, okay, if I want to feel all those things, then what are these next 10 months got to be about? Hmm. And I like the 10 months because it's a way over time to sneak in more stuff than if you just do year by year, you know, over 10 year period, you get um, 10 of those like chunks, right? Versus just like eight or whatever it is. So um, it, there's something like big around what can you do over the next 10 months? And then it's like, okay, let's draw it back to what can you do over the next 10 weeks? And, um, yeah, I mean, if you want me to get any more specific than that, happy to do that. But I think that that may answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the, the sort of breakdown, um, you know, being able to dream really big in the long term but then having a little bit more execution in the short term so that we have both sides of the coin. We're not just dreaming, but we're also not just sticking to one plan. Right on. I mean, let me give you a specific example from my life. So in my 10 year vision, um, like one of the biggest things is like, I, like I want to have the partner of my dreams. I want to have a family. Um, I want to have a magnetic relationship with her, meaning I don't want to end up in one of those like sexless relationships where we just mail it in all the time. Yeah. And so uh, I don't have anyone in my life right now in terms of like a committed relationship, but I, I damn well am planning on attracting that person. So like one of the things that's happening in my, in my 10 month plan, and I'm already like four months into this was I signed up for an eight month workshop with a bunch, with a couple of um, intimacy coaches Okay. And, and so like I'm doing deep work on how to understand the masculine energy, the feminine energy, how to create polarity, magnetism. So I'm doing the inner work right now so that I'm ready to rock and roll like when, or actually part of that is just becoming the person that can attract the, the partner of my dreams. And then we can use that foundation to build together over the next decade. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that in your um, sort of techniques is, the rules we make about sex um, come from our family, faith, and friends. And so, you know, going through the things that you have, what sort of questions can we start to ask ourselves to begin to dig into some of that to unravel the onion? Oh, I love that, man. You know what? I, I wish I had, I wish I had this for you right now, but maybe I could follow up with it. I, there was a, there was a beautiful exercise that I did in sex addicts anonymous. It's basically like your, your sexual history inventory. Mm-hmm. And I've, and I've run a few of my clients through that. Um, just a, an overview of the faith, family, and friends. Like these are the three forces that at an early age have the most impact and influence on pretty much your lifetime of sexual beliefs and behaviors. And, and my examples were in my family, sex was taboo. We didn't talk about it. Uh, my faith, which was Catholic Catholicism back then. I grew up seven years of Catholic school, altar boy, youth group, all that. 
um, was if, if you had premarital sex, you were going to hell. <laughs> Masturbation is a sin. So I'm basically like, you know, destined for hell. <laughs> and what was interesting was in my group of friends, um, I, I, um, when, when masturbation became a topic of conversation in junior high school, uh, unlike my podcast partner, Brian, where when, when masturbation came up, it was cool if you were doing it. Mm-hmm. In my school, you were a pariah. Like if, mm-hmm. if anyone found out that you were doing it, then they would out you and, and you were the weirdo. And that was at the time like where I had discovered masturbation. And the quick side note on that is when I was, I think, 13 years old, my parents left me at home alone with White Men Can't Jump, <laughs> a rated R movie where Rosie Perez has a topless scene and I just kept rewinding and playing and rewinding and playing until uh, I popped off and I had no idea what had just happened. <laughs> so Rosie Perez was my very first introduction to anything like really blissfully sexual. She has no idea about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so like those three forces, my faith, my family, my friends, it was everywhere I turned, sex was bad. It was shameful. It was wrong. It was like something to be afraid to be discovered. So let's, let, let's unpack each one of those just very briefly so that you can have something tangible to walk away from. Um, in your family, what were the specific, what were the explicit things that you learned from your family about sex? If there, any, if there was anything explicit whatsoever, it could be, uh, you're not allowed to watch those slutty movies. Or if like you're a woman, uh, maybe it was don't have sex until you get married, right? Like all boys are this way, men are that way. Like what did you explicitly learn? And then what did you implicitly learn, right? Just by like, there, there was a lot of non-talk about it in my household, but that non-talk like definitely taught me that it was something never to be discussed and to keep in the corner. And if, if I was ever like, you know, locked in the bathroom doing my business and my mom wanted to come, like, you know, it was, it was one of those things where I knew I could get in trouble if I was found out. Right. When it comes to your, um, your faith, it's pretty easy to unpack there. It's like, what did you learn from your faith? Are you a, a miserable human being if you have premarital sex? Um, are you less of a woman? Are you, you know, as a man, do you believe that um, a woman who's had sex is somehow less of a woman mm. than you are, even though like, you know, do, do the rules apply to you? And then your friends, it's basically, what did they teach you about, speaking from a man's perspective, what did they teach you about um, having sex with women? Was it something to brag about, to tell stories and exaggerate about? Were you a man if you had sex? Were you a man if you discarded women? Right. Or were you a man if like you honored women and, you know, like, did you have a group of friends like that? And for the women out there, um, you know, what did they, what, what did your friends say about the women who were sleeping around, who wore provocative clothing? Were you friends with those women or were you, you know, were you outing those women? There's an infinite number of questions that you can start to unravel. And the other part I would, I would offer up before I'll just, I'll, I'll finish answering your question here is do a chronological history of this, right? So it's like, what did you learn when you were eight to 12? What did you learn from 13 to 18? What did you learn from 18 to 22? And then like, cause you'll start to see like these, these pivotal moments, you know, some of your first, it's like your first kiss, your first time having sex, your first time by getting your heart broken, first time getting an STD, like just go through that 
and start to unpack like the beliefs and the habits, the insecurities, the desires, the fetishes. Um, you can go on for quite a while and, uh, and then you'll learn some shit about yourself. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. One of the things, and I think you were about to start touching on it was, um, when you were going through sex addicts anonymous, you had to do this disclosure of your sexual history to your partner. And Brene Brown has this idea of vulnerability of having the courage to stand up in the arena, um, and basically be you. And I'm curious, you know, through that experience that you had of disclosing that, what do you believe being vulnerable as a man means to you? I had no, I, I, I had known Brene Brown's work before this mm -hmm. disclosure process. I had no idea what it actually meant. This was the difference between knowing something intellectually and read, you know, reading something be like, Oh yeah, I get it versus actually practicing it. Mm -hmm. what, the, what, what the disclosure is for anyone who's not familiar, and I imagine most people aren't was to restore integrity in my relationship with my girlfriend who I had cheated on. She discovered me and we were going through therapy. I had to go through a process. I chose to go through a process of writing out all of my transgressions that, that had occurred during the time that she and I were together. And it was, it was, it was void of any apology, any positioning, looking good. It was purely like the sterile details of I had sex with this woman on this date protected. I had sex with this woman on that date unprotected. I had, you know, this like, like to go through at that level with no apologies and her therapist was there. My therapist was there and there was a lie detector test in the back room <laughs> with this squirrely dude. And I talk all about this on, um, on a couple of our man amongst men podcasts. Like I have two episodes on the making of a sex addict. You can go and mm -hmm. look at those on the man amongst men podcast. But, um, what, what ended up happening in the writing when I was writing that stuff out and I was, I was like coming to grips with the idea that I was about to share for the first time in my life, fully, honestly, completely transparently my actions. And I could not control or influence her feelings on the other side. It was a hundred percent in her hands, whether or not she wanted to stay with me or not. Right. I'd never, I'd never, never done something to that extent where I fully just opened up and said, here's me, all my ugly bits, all the horrible things. And then, and then said, now it's your, the balls in your court. And the, the, the strangest thing happened. And a lot of guys who do this process will tell you the same thing. It's extraordinarily cathartic. It's extraordinarily cathartic to let go and mm -hmm. to recognize like that, that how much that control is such an illusion, you know, like we, we have influence to an extent, but control our, 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 our realm of control in the, in the universe of things is so fucking small and it, but it, it's what causes us so much pain when we try to control. And I almost, I, I definitely felt bad, like walking into that, um, that disclosure with her because there was a certain sense of peace that I was feeling amidst all the torment that I'd had created for her. But it taught me this lesson, Brandon, that I've, 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 I've at, at the existential level, at the cellular level, not the intellectual level, but like at the cellular level, that the only way I ever wanted to be from that point forward was fully honest and transparent. Mm -hmm. It's like that moment is what planted the seed for me to speak openly about sex addiction, right? Like to have a podcast about this, to talk about like some of the more salacious right. details while 99% of my income comes from going on corporate stages in the most 
right? In the, mo- in the most conservative environments. And I've taken some hits for that, but, but, like, but recognizing I didn't want to position or hide or have these two separate lives anymore. And that experience of really living vulnerability at like being in the arena, as Brene Brown talks about, man, like I was in that arena um, and thank, thank God uh, my partner decided to come in there too. And she gave me the gift of, 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 of creating that experience and allowing it to happen. So I can't speak highly enough for it. And if you don't, if you haven't been vulnerable to the extent where you've like thrown up in your mouth just a little bit, <laughs> then you haven't been vulnerable enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that we struggle with as men or high performers is seeking this validation and worthiness. And so going through this process, it sounds like you had quite a you know, weight lifted off, but then you could also start to find some of that internal validation rather than always seeking that external. And so talk uh, to me a, a little bit about those differences. Yeah, brother. I, I still, I still fall victim to the external thing. Um, but growing up, I, I, um, I built all of my self-worth on getting the good grades, being praised by parents, being great on the, on the sports field, you know, my friends accepting me, of course. And those things will always be a part of my life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, of, of course, like those are, those are relevant metrics. I just put a hundred percent of my eggs in those baskets. So Anytime I got a poor grade or struck out to end a game, uh, I, like it, it, it truly spun me out of control because I wasn't standing on any sturdy foundation. I, 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 I truly felt on, for me, in some cases, it felt like dying. Like mm-hmm. I remember having these crippling pains that I couldn't fall asleep in my stomach at night um, because I got a poor grade in school on my report card. And, and, and so that was when 100% of my eggs were in the external praise and validation basket. By doing the inner work, which is really around like, <laughs> whose life am I living? Like what, you know, like I, I basically lived the default life of you go to school, you get the safe job that has a lot of money and potential. You climb that ladder, you become successful, you know, you do the things and it worked in so many areas for me, but it wasn't my script. And, and once I started to do this inner work to understand like, what were the, what was the life I was living in? Whose was it? And how did I get here? Um, then I started to shift some of the focus on how does this feel for me? And I remember like, like a, a really specific example of that was when I got promoted to become the sales manager for the Eastern half of the country at Prudential Financial. That's where I had the $1.4 billion sales goal. I remember this being like, like looking at the next level above me. Like what was the next role up? And it was a job that you know, it would have been the national sales manager. And my boss was awesome. He was like, he's a guy I have like genuine love for still. But like knowing that in a few years, that could have been my job. I didn't want that. Like I, I felt like when, when I thought about that internally, I was like, oh my God, my, 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 like my whole body constricted because mm-hmm. I saw the hours that he was putting in. I saw the decisions that he had to make. I didn't love the, like it actually, I started to recognize I didn't love the business. Mm-hmm. Right? I, like I liked certain flexibilities. I liked the money. I liked the training and development that I got. I never loved the business. I never felt love for the business. But if I was doing the external thing, the, the obvious next step would have been to go up. And what I end up seeing now, Brandon, because I go back into those corporate environments where I do coaching and keynote speaking and these kind of, you know, run workshops for leaders. I see these guys 
in their 40s and 50s. I see a lot of high-performing women as well. And there's like that spark in their eyes gone. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's not that it can't come back, but for, for some people, maybe they, maybe they can't. Maybe they're too far down that line. But like that, you can just see the life gone because they're living something that they think they're supposed to. They've continued to ignore that inner thing, that inner restlessness, that inner nudging, stuff it down by staying busier at work or stuff it down by eating too much or drinking too much or masturbating too much or sexing too much. And, and I know it all, you know, um, and living life this way with that like internal mechanism sometimes isn't easy, but it certainly keeps me in this direction of like, I know I'm creating a future that I'm excited to live in and proud to live into. Absolutely. And I, I resonate with that story so much. Uh, I had gone to school for architecture, got my master's degree. I um, mean, I've shared this story on my podcast, but um, was basically going to be an architect. And after three years is when you get to go in for um, basically to get your architecture license so that you can you know, sign your own stuff and whatnot. And I've been working three years in a firm and I sat next to um, three of the partners of the firm there. And every day I could hear the problems they would have on the phone. I could see their faces. And internally, I felt, I was like, if I continue down the line that I'm going right now, in 40 years, I'm going to be sitting in that seat. And is that where I want to be sitting? And the answer was no. And from that point on, like I, I dropped out, I, you know, doing other things now and being an entrepreneur. Um, and so I totally understand, you know, tapping into those feelings and realizing, are you actually living what you want? Or are you following some script, some sort of checkbox list? Hey, kudos to you, man. And it takes courage because it takes courage to do what you did. Uh, Cause the, you know, you get a lot of eyebrow raises when you tell people that you're doing that and mm-hmm. you got to find your own path. Um, and of course, you know, like the daily fluctuations of, Hey, like if, if I didn't show up at the architecture firm, or if I mailed in a C plus effort, most, ch- most, most days, no one's going to really notice, right. but like in an entrepreneurial world, like there, you know, you're, you're the business, it has a reverberating effect. So like you've chosen something that, that requires a different level of energy and commitment and focus. But I think any of us who have, who have made this move um, and, and, and like, and feel that it's the right one. Like we know we, we made a trade-off that we would do a hundred times out of a hundred. So I want to come back a little bit to, um, sex and masculinity. And one of the big things that, um, I'm interested in is how we're going to evolve education and sex, like in education was so minimal. Like it's here is the STDs and these are the parts, but what do you think, um, education is going to play a role in the future about cultivating knowledge and positive relationships around sex and masculinity and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, it has to change. No question. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the best places I can point you and your listeners. Um, so the, the first book that I ever really read on sexuality and it wasn't, it wasn't really specifically sexuality. It was a book called the way of the superior man by David data. And I read that 10 years ago. Um, I've got a whole bunch of books that I, I recommend to, to, to everyone. I, it's, you could, you could get it at doinnerwork.com forward slash books. I have like three different book lists that you can download around like this kind of stuff, like sexuality and also like productivity, performance, these kinds of things. But the way the superior man by David data was the first book that ever really like introduced me to um, like 
understanding what men want, what women want, how the languages are different, how masculine energy is different from feminine energy, how to create magnetism, how as a man to, 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 to channel your breathing, to slow down like what you're feeling so that like you don't pop off too early, um, how, to, how to recalibrate your focus from just being a guy who's after an orgasm to being a man who like maybe makes this all about just the, 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 the dance, the connection. Um, versus just this outcome orientation. And that book like blew my mind open because I'd never heard of any of these concepts before. And so I think it can start with something as simple as a book. Mm. Um, I will recommend for your listeners, like my, my two coaches that I'm doing that eight-month intimacy workshop with are John Wineland. And John Wineland has a lot of YouTube stuff. He's got a lot of uh, Instagram videos. He's, he's deep. Like he, he, he's, he may not be, check him out. But if like, you've never done any work on the, in the, in the sexual realm, like he may be out there for you. Mm-hmm. Kendra Kunoff is another, is, is the other teacher. I, I would say for anyone who's listening, who's never done like any of the inner work around sexuality or explored your, your, your forces that have shaped it, go out and seek the books, go out and, um, and go on YouTube, start to watch some of the videos and, and follow people on Instagram who are educators um, around sex and sexuality. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else I would want to point you to. Um, Esther Perel. Esther Perel is one of the greatest relationship experts in the world. And one of the best books I've ever read from her is Mating in Captivity. Talks about how like we have these needs for... Um, uh, desire and intimacy, and they're at odds with each other. So mm-hmm. desire requires a distance from one another and intimacy requires closeness. If you're going to be living together for 30 years, how do you have desire? You know, and she, and she talks about how to, that book also changed my life. I read it about 10 years ago. So I would say right now, because there is no map, there is no plan that's out there. You have to cobble it together yourself. Esther Perel, David Data and um, another woman who's amazing. Her name is Allison Armstrong. Wrote the book The Queen's Code. That's a lot about relationships, love languages, and these kinds of things. Awesome. That that's awesome. Thank you. I was hoping that you dive a little bit into some of the things that you're learning about masculine energy and feminine energy, um, because that comes up. Um, that was one of the big takeaways that I got from the way of the superior man is these energy differences. Um, and so especially, um, I'm married now and I know you are not married, but how does this play out in a long-term relationship so that we can keep that fire, that spark going? Awesome. Uh, so the first thing to understand is that there's a distinction between, so when, when, when someone says masculine energy, feminine energy, it does not mean man or woman, right? The energies are different. We all have masculine energy and feminine energy inside of us. Um, it's kind of a spectrum, and there are times where I'm in my feminine energy. There are times where I'm in my masculine energy. And as John Wineland would say, it just so happens that most men at their essence have more masculine energy. Most women at their essence have more feminine energy. But you definitely know that there are some times where you're around a woman who's deep in her masculine energy. And that's just like who she is, how she rolls. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely some dudes who, who are deep in their feminine energy. The best analogy I've heard to distinguish what masculine and, and feminine energy are um, masculine energy is like a structure. So if you think about like a riverbed and the feminine energy is flowing, feminine energy mm-hmm. just moves. And that's like the river that flows through the riverbed. 
So the masculine energy is like sturdy, stable, like mountains or a riverbed. And feminine energy would be like the running water that comes through it or the wind that's changing, right? Or the fire that's like just going all over the place. And one of the things that I'm learning deeply about in John Wineland's work is my responsibility as a masculine man is to constantly refine the depth and the breadth of my awareness mm. and my consciousness. He, he calls it consciousness, right? So what that means is, is like, I can, I can hold space for my feminine partner and her job and the feminine energy, what they say, the, the, her job is to constantly reveal the truth of her heart. Mm. And this revealing is like, it, it's, deep, deep vulnerability. If she's feeling sexual to reveal that, if she's feeling, if she's feeling like she's doubting herself or afraid to fully reveal that in its fullest form, not just like a little bit of it. And my job as the man is to actually like ravish that through my awareness. So it's, if, if I want to have sex and she's not because like she's, tired and crampy, or maybe I did some shit that like <laughs> caused to push her away. It, it's actually being like, sweetie, I, I fucking love how honest you're being right now. I had no idea that that thing that I did like pushed you away or made you feel unloved or made you feel like just a body that I wanted to have sex with, mm-hmm. you know, or, or if she's, you know, if, if she's, if she's in that mood and it's like, Oh my God, sweetheart, like let's see more of that. Love the way your hips move to be able to like really, uh, to speak to that. And I had a, a, an amazing, here, here's a great one for the married guys that, um, I just did a podcast yesterday with a, a brilliant guy named Larry Hagner. He runs what's called the good dad project. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like for, for, for men, he's, he's got a great podcast. You got to look that up. And he said that he's, he's a father with four boys and his wife who he's been married to for 16 years, he loves her dearly. But like in that household, his wife is constantly needed for something by every guy, boy, man in the house. And there are times where Larry just wants to show her affection. And so he does this thing. He's like, I will walk up behind my wife when she's like in the kitchen or wherever she is. I'll wrap my arms around her. And because she may think that, oh my, okay, here's a guy, here here he is again. He wants to initiate sex. He wraps his arm around you and her and he goes, sweetie, I just want you to know, I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know how fucking amazing I think you are. And I love you. Mm. That's it. And because he has refined the depth of his awareness of, of what she could possibly be going through, what she could be thinking, what her experience is like, that is like, he is, he is the most masculine in that moment. And in that moment, it'd be really hard for her heart to stay closed when he sees her at that level. And that's maybe the last thing I'll, I'll share with you is that the, the feminine is constantly trying to be seen, right? The feminine just wants to be seen so deeply, wants to be praised, wants to be understood. And that's why like women, um, like what will say to us, like one of the biggest complaints that they'll have about men who pay them compliments is that men only compliment me on my physical appearance, right? Like they don't go beyond the dress I'm wearing or like how thin I'm looking or whatever it is. It's like, can you notice something deeper about me that makes me me? Mm-hmm. And, and that your ability as a man to see that by refining your consciousness, the depth of it, 
and naming that will explode her feminine energy and like that's where the chemistry starts to happen absolutely i think that's super powerful um being able to move past just that sexual desire and refining that look into your partner um or you know any woman for example um and being able actually to see them as a person um i think is is huge and powerful it's it's so powerful man and uh you know one of the things that we do at the discerning dick workshops which are here in new york city uh it's discerning dick sexual wisdom for the modern man is we bring a group of men together half the audience ends up being women because mm-hmm. like they're just dying to know what guys were doing in a worker or you know like I, yeah. after after i gave my tedx talk there was a woman who came up to me afterwards and she was like we need to have dating apps that are with guys who have who are only guys who have gone to men's retreats or who are doing inner work, right? Yeah. Cause it's like, where are these guys and the real ones, not the, the, the phony guys. Um, and so one of the things that we've learned from, from putting women on our stages is like guys just typically initiate sex moments before they want to have it. And, and women are like, Hey, like the, what we really respond to is a constant state of foreplay. Mm-hmm. And, and it starts way before you get to the bedroom way before, like, like days before, man. And, mm-hmm. and I know this sounds heavy for guys. Like, it's like, Oh God, what do you mean? Like I'm already torn up with all this other work I got going <laughs> yeah. on. And then like, it actually, it doesn't have to be this like big, this big thing. Um, one of the women told us, she was like, you're a woman's stress hormones directly impact her sex hormones. So if she's stressed mm-hmm. out, if she's doing a million different things, if she's juggling a million different balls, and then like you want to pounce on her, she's not activated. And like you're stressing her out even more with your expectations of and this kind of thing. So if you want to like really um, allow her to flow into her sex hormones more often, like you have to be a magician at learning how to reduce her stress. And if you can refine your consciousness and awareness around what are the things that are causing her the stress, where does she get in her own way? Sometimes many of my, many of my women clients feel guilty about taking any time for themselves, you know, like taking 10 minutes out or 20 minutes out or having a night away from the kids, whatever it is. And if you as a guy can actually like see that, anticipate that without having to be asked and then just be like, baby, tonight I got the kids, you're going out with your girls, right? Or, or you know what, baby, tonight run a bath, take an hour, you know, I'll, I'll be over here and, and we'll make sure that the house doesn't burn down. <laughs> like we're ordering pizza tonight and, and doing it without any expectation of return because the bottom line is it will come back to you it will come back to you at a future point but don't layer it with that and if i do that does that mean later you know because then she's going to feel the manipulation and then that's going to cause her to to wither so yeah like learning her like just being curious about what's going on in her life and creating an environment where she feels like she's really you're seeing her and supporting her yeah absolutely one of the things that uh you brought up is that you put women on your stage for the discerning dick events. Um, and it's an amazing thing because it's, you know, empowering women to speak out about these things with men um, in the same conversation. And I think the movements that we have had to empower women um, have been amazing. Um, what my question for you though is, is how do we continue to empower men and ultimately empower both sides that we eventually don't see man and woman and who should be empowered more? I think for men, one of the best ways that we can start to empower more men is to 
is to be aware of this thing that I learned from Esther Perel. Um, and I, I used it in my TEDx talk. She said something really interesting. She said, you know, masculinity, this concept of being a man is not something that we are, are just given as men. It's not our birthright. It's not something that we're born and then just live into. It's actually something that we have to earn mm. through a series of life act, life's actions, right? And, and we can lose that masculinity in an instant, right? And, and it functions a lot like how trust functions. Like you can build an entire life of doing the right thing and then do one wrong thing and you could lose that trust because trust is fragile. And it turns out masculinity is fragile also, mm. right? Like if, who hasn't been called a pussy? Who hasn't been right. told to be a man? Who hasn't been told to stop crying? Don't be a baby. Don't be a, you know, like these things. Yeah. And in those moments, like we're, this is one of the things that most men don't understand that's running in the background all the time. It's preserve my masculinity, preserve my manhood, preserve my man. Like, you know, I'm going to finish my beer, even though I don't want to, because I want my guys <laughs> to make fun of me, you know, or I have to order the like, Buffalo wings instead of the salad because my guys are gonna make fun of me. I love Buffalo wings, but maybe today I want a fucking salad and I don't want right. to be like my, my beat up about it. So I think if, if we can start to, and women and women need to do, women also need to be a part of this. Cause I see a lot of women who, who proclaim to be, you know, we want the guy, we want the masculine man who also say the shit of be a man and mm-hmm. who also uh, like, you know, will emasculate men at the first given chance. So there, there's, there's all sides. Like we need to be a part of this is to redefine what healthy masculinity looks like. And the way that we've defined that uh, in the work that we've been doing, Brian and I, man living the highest version of himself creates environments where he and others can thrive. Mm. It's as simple as that. It's like where you can thrive, where others can thrive. And in order to get there, like you need to have emotional fluency. You need to honor women. Uh, you do need vulnerability. You need to do inner work. You need to be constantly on a journey. I, I believe you need a 10-year vision and you know, a 10-month mission and a 10-week plan of execution. So these are the things that I think if men um, can do more work around that and be supported by women who are like, hey, come on in, fumble around, you know, we'll support you also. I think we'll have a, a real shot at making a dent in this universe over the next, hopefully, course of my lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the one of the things that we've sort of lost in our society. You brought up this idea of um, earning to be a man that you're, it's not just your birthright. And something that we've lost is like in ancient civilizations, they had some sort of rite of passage yeah. that they went through, some trial or something, and you normally would go on this journey both physically and mentally. And so by the time you came out at the other end, like you've gone through some work on yourself to become that man or to become that woman. Um, and so I think we have lost that in today's day and age. Um, what do you think? Oh, dude, you're speaking my language. I was just having this conversation the other day with uh, a man who's done deep inner work around this. And I've, I've been devouring books like King Warrior, Magician Lover by Robert Moore and Iron John by Robert Bly. These are guys who have like written extensively about the loss of initiation uh, and rites of passage from boyhood into manhood. And that's why we have like these, these men who are really just stunted boys, like immature, mm-hmm. immature boys in men's bodies running around. And, um, and, 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 and like the closest thing most of us have to any kind of initiation is being hazed on a sports team or being right. hazed in a fraternity ritual, both of which like I went through. And, um, 
And in our society, you know, what it means to be a man is to be not a woman. That's really been like the default definition is like, if you're going to be a man, then just don't be a woman, which means don't be a pussy, don't cry, don't right. be emotional, don't whatever. But in most of the traditional societies who had it right, to be a man meant not to be a boy. And there was this very clear delineation of, and uh, uh, my, my friend Raven was telling me about this the other day. He, he studied in this lineage underneath the Robert Moores and the Robert Flies. He did work with them. So, I mean, he's, this guy's done the work. He said, it's typically like an age 14 year old boy would go out onto a vision quest, you know, like mm-hmm. three days, no, no food, no clothes, no water in some cases and like survive. And, and really when they came back, it was this joyous momentous occasion because there was a clear break from mom and from dad. And the, the purpose was to release dependency, like to be able to see that you as a man had, had depth, had, had resiliency, had, had ability to, to, to like, to fight um, adversity and, and like to come back and recognize, shit, I just survived no matter what life throws at me at this point, like I'm, I'm bigger than that. You know, I can handle that. And the absence of that in our lives, in men's lives, absolutely is a big problem. That's why we see dudes, including myself over the course of our, my life, when I hit adversity, I would escape through porn, through sexting, through masturbation. Other people do it through eating, through gambling, through drinking, through sports, through workaholism, because mm-hmm. we haven't learned how to consciously and healthily um, navigate those trials and see them for what they are. Absolutely. Well, I'm loving this discussion so much, but before I get to my last question, where can everybody find you, the work that you're doing? Hell yeah, man. Uh, the website is doinnerwork.com. We have all of our resources on there. You can find the man amongst men podcast on doinnerwork.com. You can also find us on like iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and um, for the books, like I'm a huge book guy, those three book lists, you can download them for free at my site, uh, doinnerwork.com forward slash books. Perfect. All right. So my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Yeah. Uh, so my, this is my big vision. This is like what I'm working on for the next 10 years. Um, and it kind of ties everything that we've been talking to together. My big question is, what would be possible if we were able to get 10 million men to take a 10 year commitment of doing inner work on themselves? Hmm. How could we shift the world? And I think that like speaking to you, who sounds like he's in the know, there've been, there are a lot of great things that are happening in pockets. You know, we have the mankind right. project and every man group who are doing great work with groups of men. We have individual coaches over here and there. Maybe we have some guys who's focused on body image or meditation or breath work or whatever, you know, uh, Ben Greenfield who lives in Spokane mm-hmm. with you, like doing that kind of work. And, and it's like, what would be possible though? Like, like the guys who are on the inner journey, it seems like we have to cobble this shit together. There's no real roadmap. And, and like, if I want to figure out like a real path of medicine work, inner work, meditation, whatever, like, where's the one place I could go? And if we could all join forces, the, the men who are doing this stuff, the experts, and like devise that path so that 10 million men could say, I get it. And I'm going to take that 10 year journey. You know, it's not just one workshop. I'm going to do a 10 year journey of like becoming better, go on that hero's journey that I really think we could actually change some of the shit that we've been talking about 
for, for centuries about the unhealthy masculine. I, and I, I do believe the work is underway and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. I love that so much. This is what, you know, our podcast is all about. This is why I loved listening to you and researching you. And I highly recommend that everybody goes and checks out the man Amongst men podcast. Um, it's some great content. So thank you, Dominic, for being on the show today. Brandon, it was my pleasure, man. And like, I've done a number of podcasts. I, I would say that they're I can't, I can't name anybody who's been more well-researched and asked more thoughtful questions than you. So um, I'm looking forward to following your progress and your journey because I have no doubt you'll be kicking ass. Well, I appreciate that. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.